Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. To hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, They were just two of the thousands of students who each year arrive in Boston for college. He the heir to a historic ministry, she the poor small-town girl with big music dreams. In 1950s Boston, Martin Luther King Jr. and Coretta Scott met and fell in love in what became the early stages of a lifelong commitment to each other and to the civil rights movement. Their Boston story is captured in the documentary film Legacy of Love. Later in the show, the young Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. and his new wife, Coretta Scott King, settled in Montgomery, Alabama for Reverend King's first pastoral assignment. There he met Rosa Parks and joined the Brothers Gray, attorney and activist respectively, in leading what became the year-long Montgomery bus boycott. Now the niece and daughter of those two men remembers their legacy and hers in a new book, Daughter of the Boycott, A Montgomery Family Civil Rights Legacy. It's our January selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. But first, the film Legacy of Love. Joining me remotely, Roberto Mighty, writer, producer, and director of Legacy of Love. Welcome, Roberto. Thank you, Callie. Glad to be here. Also with me, Reverend Walter Fluker, the Martin Luther King Jr. Professor Emeritus at Boston University. Hello, Reverend Fluker. Hello, I'm delighted to be here. I'm delighted to have both of you. I'm going to start with you, Roberto. The film was funded by King Boston. What was the motivation for doing this film? King Boston wanted to just document the fact that Martin Luther King Jr. and then Coretta Scott met in Boston And they felt that that was a momentous meeting. And they went uh, looking for filmmakers who might be interested in producing and directing that sort of project. Now, there is a plaque at 397 Mass Ave, which marks the building in the South End, what we would know as the South End now, where MLK lived as a graduate student. But I don't know that beyond that little piece of information that most of us, even those informed about his career and life, and also Coretta Scott King's, know much more about him and his time in Boston other than that before you did this film. Would you agree? I would agree. And um, by the way, I didn't know it either. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. That's, that's, that really says it all. Okay. <laughs> um, and uh, why, do you think that's, why do you think that's so? Because I, I think you'd also agree that we have combed over every bit of uh, historical information about this man and his wife, Coretta Scott King. And yet this was a piece that was just that most people are just kind of really, uh, if you mention it to them. <laughs> well, I think there's, there's a strong association of um, the Kings as an entity and Alabama and other parts of the South. And I think there's a kind of a cognitive dissonance, a disconnect with the very idea of them somehow meeting in the North and 
somehow, especially in Boston, you know, I'm not sure why that is, but um, it was something which I didn't know. And I lived here in Boston for many years. And what happened also is that their time in Boston together was relatively brief. They met, they decided to form a union, and then they were out of here in a pretty short time. You know, what I found uh, so interesting in your film is to be reminded that I don't think they would have met Roberto had they not been in Boston, as often happens with so many couples you hear about who meet here uh, during the time that they're in college. But it seems clear to me that their various backgrounds would not have put them together at all. He really came from a family that people knew and Mm -hmm. um, respected, and he was, for for Black people, middle class, uh, coming from Atlanta and and she was so much the opposite. Uh, it's really interesting. In fact, let's play a clip from the film. This is Professor Claiborne Carson of Stanford University talking about Coretta's initial experience in Boston. Coming to Boston without any money, by the way. Um, uh, you know, she goes through a period where it's not even clear that she's going to have enough money to pay uh, her tuition. And once she does that, she doesn't have anything left over for food money. You know, and I have to say, the way that she always carried herself with a certain level of elegance, I made certain assumptions about her background, I think, uh, Roberto. You know, in fact, I'm so glad you're bringing this up. This turns out to be a a key component of of this film, because quiet as it's kept, a lot of people don't like to talk about class stratification within African American communities. And this is a perfect example of what's being said here, that in fact, Martin Luther King Jr.'s family was prominent, you know, from this sort of Atlanta elite. A lot of people don't know, again, I didn't know that, in fact, young Coretta Scott had actually picked cotton to help her family who were out in a, what we would call the Deep South in a certain, in Heiberger, Alabama. So this is about as far apart in class stratification as you can get in America at that time. Well, I think it's interesting that, you know, she was a striver, as we would know. So here she is, this poor girl, barely any money for food, as Professor Claiborne Carson makes clear. And she's at the New England Conservatory of Music studying to sing opera because she was going to take herself way far from the cotton fields. Yes. She carried herself elegantly. She uh, spoke in a certain way um, that would, there's just impossible I think for many of us to imagine that she had anything other than the kind of upper middle class, uh, historically black college kind of background. So yeah, and by the way, you know, she was a big admirer of Marian Anderson, whom some of your listeners might know was one of the most celebrated African-American singers uh, at that time who did sing opera and classical music and so forth. Um, But the idea of an African-American woman having a career like that was still kind of far-fetched. So that Coretta Scott is an amazing person. And this also comes out uh, in many ways in the film. So Reverend Fluker, when the young Martin Luther King, and we speak of him in little letters now, not the big capital ones at this point in his life, because he's a grad student, he was putting together at that time something very important that would be the central part of his philosophy and life. And that is looking at Gandhi's work in India in his work, Nonviolence, and trying to craft for himself what he, how he wanted to use that in America. And it's something called social gospel. Would you, would you talk about that? Yeah, I'd be happy to. When we refer to the social gospel, we're normally talking about 
a movement within modern Christian circles that begins in the late 19th century and comes to America in the early 20s. Walter Rauschenbusch King mentions he was influenced deeply by the social gospel, which basically says that the most authentic expression of Christian faith is surrounded by social justice and social transformation. King was uh, a very, very deep reader, as you well know. And the social gospel was also a trend among African-American scholars, Mordecai Wyatt Johnson, uh, Howard Thurman, of course, and others were very much a part of this social gospel movement. Sometimes it's referred to as the black social gospel. And so King references this uh, in a stride toward freedom and it becomes a mainstay, a significant dimension of his theological outlook. Now, you also have talked about Boston University's impact on what you call King's personalism. What, what do you mean by that? Personalism, as King explains it, is the belief that God is personal. That is, that deity itself has personality. And not personality in the sense of simply being human, having a persona, but at the heart of the universe, there, there is reason, consciousness, and value. And that all of God's creation shares in this rational order and in this order of value, which is the basis for King's understanding of the worth and dignity of all human beings. Since God is personal and God is good, that means that everything God creates is good. And perhaps the most beautiful creative expression of God is human freedom. So King, he begins this before he arrives at Boston, but at Boston under the uh, professorship of Edgar Sheffield Brightman, and uh, later, Harold DeWolf, King uh, begins to formulate his own understanding of personalism as it relates to the freedom struggle of African-Americans and other oppressed groups in the country. So how do you see, I should skip ahead and say many years later in 1964, which was just a few years before he died, um, Reverend King donated 80,000 items to BU archives. That's files and awards, manuscripts, extensive correspondence. He even donated the brown leather briefcase he carried with him up and down the road um, as he was preaching and speaking in all of those communities uh, leading civil rights uh, struggles. So you think about, um, obviously, BU was very important to him in the shaping of his lifelong philosophies and, and mantras that carried him through uh, his life. So I wonder if you can pinpoint what, what you think he got in Boston um, in addition to that, that he probably couldn't have gotten anywhere else. Absolutely. I think that one of the uh, most important moments for King as a student at Boston when he arrives, uh, is the fact that on the campus of Boston, as dean of the Marsh Chapel, is Howard Washington Thurman. Mm. This is a very important uh, piece that I think scholars often miss. Howard Thurman was the first African-American to lead a delegation to meet with Gandhi in 1936. 
So uh, Gandhi was not like a news flash for King <laughs> uh, when he arrived at Boston, but he was working through this as were many African-Americans in leadership roles dating all the, way, all the way back to the late 19th, early 20th century, Du Bois being among those. And of course, a number of major religious thinkers like Benjamin, Elijah Mays, Mordecai Wyatt Johnson, and so on. So King is there when Howard Thurman is the dean of the chapel. Can you imagine that? Wow. King is, is beginning his doctoral career. And of course, it would be remiss, I think, not to think about the ways in which he's influenced by Thurman. Uh, I interviewed Coretta Scott King in the early 80s, and she had fun memories of what she said, Martin's fascination with Howard Thurman. He would attend chapel services, and when he and other students at Boston University would meet outside at Marsh Chapel, they would try to imitate Thurman's slow, methodical preaching cadence. So uh, there's a deep influence there. But most importantly is the idea of Boston personalism. It is the key philosophical, metaphysical uh, way in which King interprets not just personal reality, but the social world. And because it ascribes to the human being inherent dignity and worth, you, you see this in many of King's speeches, it is the basis for our rights to free speech, our rights to assemble, and of course, the larger idea of our citizenship rights. I'm Callie Crossley, and you're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. My guests are Roberto Mighty, director of the documentary Legacy of Love, and Reverend Walter Fluker. We're discussing the Boston-based early stages of the relationship between Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. and Coretta Scott on this Sunday before the MLK holiday. Now, one of the things that Dr. King was doing while he was here as junior pastor was preaching. I appreciated uh, hearing about his preaching at that time, Roberto, in the film. So here's Mrs. Leonore Woodson describing Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. as a preacher. When he kept preaching to us about our destiny, about what to look forward to, but we must work together, keep your shoulder to the, to the wheel. And that kind of talk made you think. So people were recognizing him for being the great speaker and preacher that he was even then. Yes, absolutely. Yes. In fact, um, first of all, um, Mrs. Woodson, what a gem, what a marvelous and wonderful person to interview. A key element of the film was finding living witnesses, um, people who had actually been around in the early 1950s and who had met and or worked with or socialized with um, one or the other, uh, Martin and or Coretta, who could speak um, to, again, their personal witness. And um, yes, there are scholars who have analyzed um, Martin Luther King's cadence, the way that he speaks, his use of certain um, you know, rhetorical flourishes, call and response and so forth and so on. And again, of course, Reverend Fluker, you know way more about this than I do, but let me just say from my, from my position as this more like a regular person, <laughs> that when I, when I hear Dr. King speak, um, even now on recordings, 
it something physical happens in my body and it's yeah you know, it gets a tremendous uh, attention it gets my attention i'm listening very carefully and i think you can analyze this till the cows come home but there's some charismatic element that puts dr king's preaching above others in fact um one of the um other uh, pastors in the film the, the now late um, Reverend Michael B. Haynes of the 12th Baptist Church in Roxbury says that um, after listening to King preach, you didn't want to go after him and preach. <laughs> um, Reverend Fluker, you want to add to that? Thank you so much for asking that question. Hortense Spillers says that the best instrument for hearing King, for understanding King's preaching is the human ear. And it's important to know that as part of the African-American religious tradition, the significance of sound and the frequency of sound. It's not just what you say in black life, church and otherwise, it's how it is expressed. So uh, in black churches, we take the gospel, you know, in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God. I like to rephrase that and say in the beginning was the sound. And it's no accident that when you listen deeply to King, you hear this deep melancholy uh, uh, cadence. Uh, he's very slow. He invites you in and he works you over with sound, with ideas, all orchestrated simultaneously bringing you closer to a crescendo. It's an art form. Mm -hmm. And uh, scholars like James Weldon and Johnson called uh, black preachers God's trombones. Mm -hmm. It's no accident, the significance of sound, but wedded to that, this kind of melancholy dirge. The late Gardner Taylor says that great preachers, you see it in their eyes. There's a far away look, especially in King. See King on the last night there in Memphis in his last public sentences where he talks about the mountaintop. There's a kind of melancholy that is cast over him and you see in his eyes, in the furrowed brow of King, the countenance of something that is deep, we like to say prophetic. He's mm. speaking as if he's already seeing the promised land. And that's Black preaching at its best. Mm -hmm. I'm reminded of uh, some sentences earlier before he gets to the mountaintop piece of that speech, I am from Memphis, that often gets overlooked and I think is is all of what you've just said, which is only in the dark can you see the stars. And then he says, I may not get there with you. Now, here's a fun fact. Uh, I discovered this while re researching for this conversation. Crozier Theological Seminary, where, where MLK <laughs> went, gave him a C in public speaking. I just <laughs> had to mention that. <laughs> what the heck? This is on his official what transcript. <laughs> what is that? Uh, I think those were people who missed the sound. <laughs> missed the sound. They, they couldn't hear. They, they didn't no, understand they the hear. sound. They missed it. They missed it. 
Uh, Roberta, one of the things that you mentioned was, uh, uh, and your film really does so well, is to get to the people that really knew him uh, at this time in his life, not the people who came later, but those in this moment Mm -hmm. in Boston. One of those persons was uh, Professor Herman Hemingway. You mentioned mentioned Reverend Michael Haynes. Um, And I wanted to uh, play this clip uh, from the film because what I like about what you talk to them about is not just how how great he was even in that moment, but, you know, the fact that he was just a guy and people <laughs> were just meeting him on that level. He was just a, another college student. So here's yes. Professor Herman Hemingway, the first black man to graduate from Brandeis University, giving his impression of Martin Luther King Jr. And Hemingway passed away, as I said, last month in Boston at the age of 88. First impression, I'll be very honest with you, he was the shortest person in our group. So that was the first impression, how short he was. And, and the first impression, but out of his mouth, when he spoke, even at that time, he was a giant. That's pretty, it was pretty amazing. A number of people noted he was uh, short, Roberto, including Coretta Scott, yeah. who after her first yeah. date we learned in this film was like, oh my God, this guy is short. short How did yes. I get here? Uh, <laughs> obviously, that went away because they yes. had other things uh, to connect them. That's right. And what I want to make clear about Coretta Scott during that time, because people have often given this to MLK, is that she, at that point, was way far ahead of him on some progressive ideas about humanity and human rights. Talk about that a little bit. Well, thank you so much. I just wanted to say, first of all, I... um, I think that a lot of short men have a lot more to offer than people think we do. So I'm really glad to hear. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. um, Nothing personal. Nothing personal here (laughs) at all. Actually, let me say that Professor Hemingway, what a great, a great man, a great American, a nice guy. And it's a shame, a a terrible loss that he's uh, not with us anymore. I just like to append to, to this this idea of them both being attractive. Okay, that, that, I hope we can talk about that a little bit because that's key in there, how they affected other people. But um, as far as, yes, the, as far as Coretta Scott is concerned, yes, she brought her own left, I'm not gonna say left-leaning, I will say leftist political um, bent to that relationship. And um, in the film, of course, there are a couple of instances where I do bring this out, where she's kind of instructing Martin on a, a bit more of her leftist ideologies. And those become important to their relationship, to their courtship. Um, but also after his assassination, you know, she goes on to become obviously an incredibly important civil rights leader herself. And in the work that she does, she is her more leftist leanings become more and more and more evident as the years go by. So to your point about the two of them being quite an attractive couple, when we should mention that something else that's brought out in your film is that he was quite the playboy before <laughs> he sort of focused on uh, Coretta Scott and yes. she's beautiful and she's very focused and blind. They weren't on a blind date, really, because yes. uh, the person at the church understood both of them uh, had something to offer, she thought, to each other. And in fact, they did. But mm-hmm. to the point about her being... Uh, the person at that moment who was a little bit more focused in a progressive way than he was. Very interesting, given her background and his. Um, Here's Professor Claiborne Carson of Stanford University describing a letter that MLK wrote to Coretta. So he starts the letter out in terms of this, you know, flowery uh, praise of her and and, uh, 
and it's, it's kind of the epitome of almost 19th century Victorian romance. But then he shifts gears. He pledges to Coretta that the gospel that he will preach to the world has to do with a warless world, a better distribution of wealth, a brotherhood that transcends race or color. These political ideas become the glue that hold this relationship together. That's pretty amazing. Um, so the love language from MLK to Coretta, then Scott, um, was really about building a movement, you know, their relationship sort of being an anchor of building a movement. Um, I'd like both of you to answer the question, how do you put their Boston story in the overall context of their lives? We've talked about the importance of Boston to their individual developments, but as they come together and eventually get married, as we know, how do you put their story as a couple, as growing together in the overall context? I'll start with you, Roberto, and then I'll, I'll go to Reverend Fluker. Okay, you know, I was a, I was an African American student at a Boston college, in fact, Boston University, um, in the early to mid seventies, and I remember um, we had we black students had our own sort of social network that moved not only on our campus but also included other campuses, Tufts, Harvard, BC, and so forth, and we had our own social circles. Some of those were around fraternities and sororities. Some of them were around sports. Some of them were around, in my case, um, you know, being a musician or whatever it was. So uh, this, this condition of African-American students um, finding common cause, socializing together around different campuses, that brings about a tremendous fertility of, like, of thought, a tremendous social um, coming together and exchange of ideas. And in fact, uh, one of the other uh, wonderful witnesses in the film, a woman who dated Martin Luther King uh, at that time, and she was the only black woman in her in her class at Radcliffe at the time she was a freshman. You know, she speaks to this idea of them all getting together for these, uh, I guess we would call them salon nowadays, you know, and some of these would take place in Martin's apartment where these powerful intellectual young people would come from all the surrounding colleges and get together and debate the issues of the day. So it's an incredibly fertile environment, a fertile intellectual and social environment. And by the way, yes, Coretta was gorgeous. You know, if I were a student and that, I would have tried to date her and she would have smacked me down, of course, needless to say, but, <laughs> <laughs> but, and again, this, this ties in, you know, this, this powerful attraction and I'll yield the floor right now. <laughs> <laughs> Reverend Fluker, how do you put their Boston story in the overall context of their lives? Yeah. I like to think about the fact that they're very young and they are Southerners. Martin King is part of the Atlanta Brahmin class, which is no small thing even now in Atlanta. Uh, so there was something going on in these little places all over the South where there were huge bourgeois aspirations. And uh, education in the South for African-Americans highlighted this kind of sensitivity to a a, a rational discourse which was wedded to character. There was no accident. So King, Morehouse, and Coretta goes on to Oberlin. She goes north. King, of course, makes his way north beyond Crozer. And they are well-formed. Uh, nowadays, the label would be they are respectables. <laughs> they know the etiquette of the culture. 
they know how to speak well, they are read well, et cetera. So uh, I wanna keep that in mind. So, and I'm thinking of the dialectical society, uh, Roberto, that you're referring to that would meet mm -hmm. in King's apartment. Mm -hmm. And imagine these young people going through the philosophy of Hegel or reading Marx together. It's a statement to me about a different time, though we have an incredible movement going on now among uh, young people in the country, but this is a different time. And it, Du Bois calls it the difference between the cold calculated New England reason and the Southern spirituality uh, of the South, of the Southern environment, he calls it. It's, it's body and mind, my point is, that comes together in Boston among these youth who are predisposed to activism and changing their worlds. Coretta Scott King was a huge supporter of Henry Wallace, who was a progressive socialist. And most of us know well that King, uh, his basic political position was democratic socialism. Uh, not communism as he's normally uh, labeled, uh, but democratic socialism, which was also part of the personalist kind of framework as well. So my point is, Kelly, that this context of uh, bringing together, uh, I almost like to use the language congregating, conjuring and conspiring. These were young people who were talking about how they were gonna take what they learned at these very elite schools in New England and take it to the rest of the country. And indeed they did even to the world. So in fact, as many college students say they're going to do, they did go out and change the world. They changed the world. Thank you both for joining me today. A real pleasure and an honor to be on with all of you and uh, Reverend Fluker. So good to hear and, and to feel both of you again. Roberto Mighty is the writer, producer, and director of the documentary, Legacy of Love, funded by King Boston. And Reverend Walter Fluker is the Martin Luther King Jr. Professor Emeritus at Boston University. Legacy of Love, hosted by Reverend Liz Walker, will rebroadcast on Thursday, January 21st at 10.30 on GBH Channel 2. Coming up, Rosa Parks needed a lawyer, and young attorney Fred Gray stepped up. So did his brother, Thomas Gray, longtime community leader in Montgomery. Both men contributed their time and skills to the historic Montgomery bus boycott. Karen Gray Houston, daughter and niece, tells their story in her new book, Daughter of the Boycott, A Montgomery Family Civil Rights Legacy. It's our January selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanya, that's Creole for something extra. The Montgomery bus boycott catapulted the young Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. to leadership in the civil rights movement. 
history and fate linked him to Rosa Parks and to local civil rights advocates, the Gray brothers, attorney Fred Gray and activist Thomas Gray. Now niece and daughter, respectively, Karen Gray Houston, profiles her family's involvement in the bus boycott and the movement that changed America. Daughter of the Boycott, a Montgomery family civil rights legacy, is our January selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. This was a labor of love for author Karen Gray Houston, a retired journalist who got her start right here in Boston, working for UPI, United Press International. She joins me now from her home in Clover, South Carolina. Hi, Karen. Hey, Kelly. Great to be with you. I'm so glad to have you. What a great book. You know, I knew you way back in the day, but I did not know that you were related to the Grays until many, many years later. It's so interesting. So you're doing the book. Um, that in and of itself just really tells the history for even those who thought we knew, right? <laughs> I had to write the book. I mean, it was, and growing up, you know, I knew a little bit about the bus boycott, but you know, my dad, uh, Thomas Gray and my uncle Fred Gray, they just didn't talk about it every day. They were busy living their lives and I was busy living mine. And it didn't dawn on me till many years later how important what they did was and that I wanted to chronicle stories that had not been told. Well, I, of course, later on uh, understand who the Grays were in the context of producing the documentary series Eyes on the Prize. But the story of the Montgomery bus boycott is really important. It's huge uh, in terms of thinking about the civil rights movement, what we call the modern civil rights movement in general. So why don't you explain the import of that bus boycott? The Montgomery bus boycott really ignited the modern day civil rights movement. It was the first you know, mass direct action protest where a whole lots of people, a whole community of people Tens of thousands of people agreed to come to a point where they wanted to get to racial justice and to do something about it. And so it really gave courage to Black people after that to stage uh, uh, lunch counter protests, so integrate lunch counters, uh, you know, freedom riders, marches. And it all really started at that point in 1955 in Montgomery. So as fate would have it, another reason why the bus boycott came to be known somewhat, as to your point, it's not as known as it, as it should be, is because a very young Martin Luther King Jr. arrived there on his first pastoral assignment. He was 26 years old, Karen, and that he wasn't that much younger than your father, actually. Kelly, they were all young. <laughs> but, you know, if you think about it, people who are out there protesting, they are kids. They're kids in their late teens and their early 20s. Well, first of all, it's because they have time. They don't have as many responsibilities as older folks. They really feel like they can change the world. And so, the, you know, those are the people who are out there on the front lines trying to affect change in most of these civil rights movements. Well, that's true. But at the time, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. had Coretta Scott King, so they were just starting their family. And of course, uh, your family was started with your brother and, and your mom and everybody. So your father did have, even as young as he was, had something on the line more than perhaps some of the youngest members out in the street protests today. So there is that. But what I think is important and what you raise in your book um, is that while the book is called Daughter of the Boycott, there was so much that went on leading up to the point where people felt like they were ready to take this giant risk. And uh, one of the incidents that happened that involved your father 
was with Hilliard Brooks. I want you to read from your book about what had happened to Hilliard Brooks, whom your father knew because he played football with him. So if you would read an excerpt, that'd be great. All righty. When Thomas Gray read that a fellow veteran and former neighborhood football pal had been fatally shot by a white police officer, he flew into a rage, not afraid of confrontation. It was time for action. He showed the article to his friend, Ronald Young, insisting, we can't let these jokers get away with that. The incident occurred August 12, 1950. Nobody doubted that Hilliard Brooks was inebriated. Witnesses agree he was unruly when he tried to board a bus on Dexter Avenue, the main street in downtown Montgomery. But there are several versions of what happened next. One was that Brooks was shot when he got off the bus after exchanging words with the white driver for refusing to pay his dime bus fare. Another has it that Brooks had been drinking and dropped his money on the floor. When the bus driver told him to pick it up, Brooks said, you pick it up. Whatever happened, the bus driver summoned a nearby police officer to deal with a disturbing the peace complaint. Brooks must have gotten off the bus. As historian J. Mills Thornton tells the story in his book, Dividing Lines, police officer M.E. Mills pushed Brooks to the sidewalk and shot him to death after he struggled back to his feet. According to at least one account, Brooks was coming toward the officer, but witnesses reported that Brooks was standing with his arms at his side. An article in the newspaper the day after the shooting said Brooks was drunk and cursing. The advertiser said there were hundreds of witnesses and some of them called the shooting reckless and needless. The newspaper quotes a detective as saying the bullet went through Brooks' stomach and injured two bystanders. A man and a woman were struck in the leg. According to the advertiser, Officer M.E. Mills said Brooks hit at him and pulled the whistle and chain from his shirt. The officer pushed Brooks away. That's when he fell, got up, and allegedly advanced toward the policeman. The officer shot him. Brooks later died in the hospital. Not a big man, Brooks weighed about 145 pounds. One female witness was quoted as saying, the boy appeared to be so intoxicated that he could have been subdued easily. I do not think the policeman shot in self-defense. I think he took the law into his own hands. It was the beginning of one of many sagas predating the 1955 bus boycott that my father recounted to me late in his life. So, Karen, two things to note there. First of all, your father's involvement after this happened, he organized a demonstration. And nobody was doing that. I mean, we think about demonstrations all the time now, but nobody was doing that. It was quite risky for him, not only to expose himself to the powers that be, uh, but just in you know, his his life actually was on the line in, in doing that. It was. And, but let me tell you this. He got some advice from the one person in Montgomery at the time who was considered really Mr. Civil Rights, E.D. Nixon. E.D. Nixon was the president of the, the local chapter of the NAACP. He worked with voting rights groups. He was head of the Democrats for Progressive Action, or I can't remember the name of all the groups. Rosa Parks was his secretary and worked with him a lot. So he had organized a protest for voting rights back in the 1940s, in which he got as many hundreds of people to march in downtown Montgomery. And so he stayed in the background on this particular one, but he was in the background advising my father and helping 
my father and his friend Ronald Young planned this protest. So it didn't come out of nowhere, but my father, who really had a lot of respect for E.D. Nixon, went ahead with the, the, this with some advice from somebody who knew some things about protest. But my point is, Karen, that was very scary. Oh, my mother was terrified. Uh, Mom, you know, she was kind of used to let, you know, back then women let men do what they had to do. You didn't really confront them. If they said they wanted to do something, they did it. Uh, This was in an era when there were lynchings going on. And this was actually before the Emmett Till case. That was four years later in nearby Mississippi when that young boy was was lynched. But uh, yeah, white people let black people know that they needed to stay in their lane. And it was a dangerous thing for him to do but he did it anyway. Did you ever ask him as you were starting to put these stories together of both your father and your uncle, if he was afraid? My daddy was kind of a cocky guy. I'll tell you this. When I asked about that, he gave me a story of something that happened in the neighborhood. My dad was a businessman in his early twenties and he, uh, he sold uh, radio and TVs and appliances and he had a big a store. He he and one of his na- the neighbor across the street, William Singleton, owned a store called Dozier's. One day, Dad was driving home from work, and a, a car full of white guys followed him, and he noticed it. And he turned down the main street into our neighborhood, and they were still behind him. So he was afraid to drive to our house. So he stopped a little ways down the street and he yelled out for a couple of neighbors to see if anybody would come out. Nobody came outside. So my dad was ready for a confrontation and he happened to have a big uh, pipe, a a metal pipe under the seat in his car because, you know, black people expected trouble. And, you know, if they didn't have a gun, they had something. So he pulled it out. And when the guys, white guys jumped out of their car and advanced on him, he walked towards them like he was going to hit them. And they jumped back in their car and drove away. So my father was fearless. (laughs) Yeah, I would say so, because that was a very dangerous time. All right. So that gives gives an example of that time. I just want to point out also, if you read that story and didn't tell people the date or the place, it sounds like today, sadly. Well, that was 70 years ago. And when I started, well, it sounds like today, when I started the book research in 2014, 2015, there was a whole wave of white police brutality. You know, there was Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, and there was Eric Garner in New York City, and Freddie Gray died in police custody in Baltimore. And then I stumbled on another case right there in Montgomery, and I think it was 2016, a man named Greg Gunn walking home from a party, a card party, to his house, two o'clock in the morning. A white police officer sees him walking down the street, thinks he looks suspicious. There's a confrontation. The white police officer takes out his taser, tases the guy, beats him, shoots and kills him. That was in 2016. And then now here we are talking about George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, and it just goes on and on. And when does it stop? I mean, I don't have the answers to that, but it says a whole lot about racial profiling and how deeply racism is entrenched in our country. Mm-hmm. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm speaking with Karen Gray Houston, the author of her new memoir, Daughter of the Boycott, A Montgomery Family Civil Rights Legacy. It's our January selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar book club. 
So Hilliard Brooks and many other incidents that you recount in your book were the lead up to the Montgomery bus boycott, as we've discussed how big it was, how important it was to the kicking off of uh, a modern uh, civil rights movement. We should note that it went on for uh, more than a year because the community at that point had had it with the incidents like the Hilliard Brooks and other kinds of disrespect. And this is where, if people are wondering, this is where Rosa Parks' story happens, because Rosa Parks, the activist, as you make clear in your book, decided, uh, this is the day I am not going to give in to segregation on this bus. As she is arrested, because those were the times, she goes down to the jail, and who should end up lawyering with her but your uncle, Fred Gray, um, who um, before was lawyering, but now this was an important point in his career as a lifelong civil rights attorney. So talk a bit about the legacy of your uncle, Fred Gray. Fred Gray was always a man on a mission. Even as a child, his my grandmother, his mother, actually wanted him to be a preacher. And I call him Uncle Teddy. He had a nickname that was, people called him Teddy. And I, my entire life, I've called him Uncle Teddy. So if I slip into that, you have to understand. My grandmother sent him away to a church school. She was very religious. You know, he was either going to be a preacher or a teacher, right? So when he finished high school at that boarding school in Nashville, he came back home. He was preaching to his, his brothers and his sister. And he used to baptize cats and dogs. You know, he had just decided what he wanted to do. So when he came back from the boarding school and went to college at Alabama State Teachers College for Negroes, as we were called back in the day, he was riding the bus to school and it would go through uh, the black section of town and a white section of town to get to, to Alabama State. And he saw how terribly black people were treated on the buses. You would get in on the front and you would put your dime fare in and you would get off the bus and you would go back to the side and get in in the back and have to sit in the back of the bus. And he thought that was outrageous and he wanted to do something about it. So he was gonna become a lawyer. He too was influenced by E.D. Nixon who thought the only answer for black people to get some justice in Alabama was gonna be to get some black lawyers because they didn't have any. So both my father and my uncle were influenced in that way by E.D. Nixon. My uncle decided he was gonna go to a law school in a city someplace up north where he could attend law school that would admit black people. Because at the time, no place in Alabama would, you know, the University of Alabama was the only place you could go to law school, would not admit black people. He was going to go up to Cleveland, get his law degree, go back to Alabama, and destroy everything segregated he could find. And he did. And the kickoff, of course, of that was his involvement in the Montgomery bus boycott. And the uh, aforementioned E.D. Nixon is there. Your father is, you know, all active and involved and out there bravely doing stuff. Your uncle is in place as a lawyer. And then the Montgomery bus boycott kicks off with the very young, nobody knew him, 26-year-old Martin Luther King Jr., whose name was in small letters then and then forever after became something else. So let's take a listen to E.D. Nixon. This is E.D. Nixon from the documentary series Eyes on the Prize. Uh, the hour is called Awakenings. Here is E.D. Nixon recounting his experience speaking to Rosa Parks about her case. I said, Ms. Parks, I said, with your permission, we can break down segregation on the bus with your case. I said, I'm, I'm, I'm convinced that uh, we can do it. I said, if I wasn't convinced, I wouldn't bother you about it. 
She asked her mother what she thought about it. She said, I'll go along with Mr. Nixon. I asked her husband. He said, I'll support it. So that's fine. So that's the E.D. Nixon that you've been speaking of before. Once the boycott gets started, what made it possible for folks to continue to stay off the city buses where segregation was enforced, forcing Mrs. Parks to take her stand, was the fact that there was a very complex informal car service put together uh, by the folks in the community, which your father was very active in that as someone who would pick up and drop off people. I I need for people to understand this went on for more than a year. So people who normally would take the bus are now having to figure out how to get a ride to all the jobs that they need to get to. So Here's Rufus Lewis, again from Awakenings and Eyes on the Prize, talking about the logistics of transporting people who were boycotting segregated buses. We asked for persons who had cars and would voluntarily put them in the transportation pool to let us know and what time they could be used. And in that way, we could know when we would have cars and where they had to go to pick up people. People would call in and say, I'm out here on Cloverdale Road in such and such a block, and I'm, I'll be ready at such and such a time. But this was being done all through the day, and we would know what time they were supposed to be picked up and where they were. So, Karen, your uncle and your father were intimately involved in this, in this boycott, which had such a tremendous reverberation throughout the country. Did you have a sense before you started putting all this together of how important they were to this movement? As you know, it's four years old when the boycott started. So four-year-olds don't really have a sense of much except, oh, my daddy's coming home from work. Um, So, and he didn't really talk about it much at the time. Well, I knew my uncle was the lawyer of the boycott attorney. And I think that what happened with my parents is they wove a little cocoon around my two brothers and me so that they could protect us from some of what was going on. So we didn't have to hear that, you know, there were bombings going on, but churches were being bombed and people's houses were being bombed. And, you know, there were threats being made and people, people's cars were being vandalized. So I didn't know that was happening. And no, at the time I had no sense of how important they were, except that when I was in, uh, after the boycott and a couple of years in, in kindergarten and second grade, people said, you know, your, your dad, your uncle was the lawyer for the boycott. And I barely knew what a lawyer was. So it was really not until I, as I grew up, I met Rosa Parks as a, uh, and when I knew who she was, as maybe uh, in what uh, junior high school, and I wasn't smart enough to know to ask her about her role and what was going on. So it was really not until much later that I understood. And, and, and you know, uh, most of the country didn't give the people in Montgomery credit for what happened during the boycott, and people didn't write about it until many years after the fact. Martin Luther King wrote a book in 1958, and it was 30 and 40 years later that the books Parting the Waters and Bearing the Cross came out and that Joanne Robinson's book, Joanne Robinson, the the head of the Women's Political Council, her book about the Montgomery bus boycott and the women who started it wasn't until the 1990s. And Rosa Parks didn't write her her book, My Story, uh, which is the title of her book, until about the late 1990s. So I wasn't the only one who wasn't thinking about how important it all was. 
What makes your book so special is you have that personal viewpoint, even even though, as you pointed out, you were quite young when a lot of these activities were happening. But be, but for you to be able to pull that all together now, personally, through your dad and your uncle, is, is quite powerful. What do you want people to take away from reading this story, your story, your family's story, Daughter of the Boycott? Takeaway is, well, you know that extraordinary results can come from the, the efforts of ordinary people. And, and that's not an original quote, I think. Um, Barack Obama and some other people have said it, but it, you know that's what happened in Montgomery in 1955. It was a whole community of regular people came together and they were able to force the major change. So I, I think that's important. And also that you can't afford to be quiet when you see injustice. You know, you, you have to use your voices to affect some kind of change. And so, you know, Martin Luther King said that in his letters from the Birmingham jail that, you know, he kind of called out good people who passively affect evil. So when you see bad stuff happening, you need to do something about it. So, Karen, the first part of the title of your book is Daughter of the Boycott. That looks back to the history. But the second part is Carrying on a Montgomery Family's Civil Rights Legacy. So how are you carrying on? Well, first of all, I wrote this book. And in this book, I tell you stories you haven't heard before. And I put a little light on some stories that were there that people have ignored. For example, you know, you talk about Rosa Parks and that's the first thing you think about, but really there were four women who were involved, who were really more responsible for overturning segregation on the buses than anybody else. Claudette Colvin, Claudette Colvin was a 15 year old girl who in March of 1955 was the first person they really documented who was arrested for refusing to give up her seat to a white passenger. There was Aurelia Browder. There was uh, Mary Louise Smith. There was Susie McDonald. And in all of those cases, people looked up and said, oh, maybe we can do something. And in fact, with Claudette, my uncle thought she was the case, she would be the test case. But the problem with Claudette for a lot of black leaders was that once she was arrested a couple of months later, she got pregnant. And the feeling was that they didn't want uh, the face of the, the, the you know, challenge to segregated busing to be a teenage unwed mother. And then there was Aurelia Browder. Now she's the person who's on the, the name of the plaintiff, the named plaintiff in the case that went up to the Supreme Court that overturned segregation on the buses. Uh, but if you ask her, her children, they'll say, well, Edie Nixon didn't want a dark skinned, aggressive, you know, angry black woman to be the person that they had the boycott around. And there was Susie McDonald, who was a, a very bright, looked almost white uh, woman, who was one of the plaintiffs as well, but she was one of those people who was fighting with the bus drivers. They didn't know she was, she was black. She would sit, they thought she was white and she would sit in the white section. It, you know, Rosa Parks was just the perfect demeanor, the look, and people didn't know how deep-seated her hatred was of segregation and white supremacy, but she was just the perfect figure to be the test, to be the, the, the boycott spokesperson, the person who represented the boycott. And so it worked out for her. But so I told those are stories that, you know, that's the story. And then I went to, I wanted to find out things like, 
what were the white people doing on the other side of town while we were over here boycotting? And how did the boycott affect them? And so I joined some civic organizations in Montgomery and I went to them and I said, I'm trying to find people who can tell me more about the boycott than I know. And that's how I met people like Sally Mosier, whose father was the racist police commissioner who did everything he could to try to block what the black people were doing back then. I think that a lot of the white people I met like her, you know, a white woman who had a maid during the boycott, uh, a, a white minister who was driven out of town basically for talking about preaching against the evils of segregation. They, these are people who had stories to tell that nobody bothered to go to previously. You know, we kind of told the story from one point of view and that there, there were either white allies or people who didn't like what was going on who we haven't heard from. And so I gave them some voice. So last question. We're in an interesting time right now, but we're grappling with race and racism in this country. In some ways, it feels as though we're back in those Montgomery bus boycott times. How do you uh, see your book fitting in this context at this moment? Well, Kelly, I think it's important to look back in history because sometimes we can learn some lessons. You know, earlier in the summer, and I was looking at the Black Lives Matters against white police brutality. And I said, these guys have a right to be angry. They see some wrongs that have to be righted. It had pushed everybody to a breaking point, even in a pandemic. And I talked to some of those young kids and they said they were, they were willing to risk catching the coronavirus because they thought that, you know, racial justice was more important. Wish I had a lot more answers for you. I really am just trying in my book to document uh, and pay tribute to my father, my uncle, and all those unsung heroes who risked their lives, put their lives on pause to fight for social justice. And I want to say thank you to them for opening up doors for people like me and you. Thanks, Karen. Karen Gray Houston is a retired journalist and the author of Daughter of the Boycott, A Montgomery Family Civil Rights Legacy. It's our January selection for Bookmark, the Under the Radar Book Club. It's available online and in bookstores now. That's it for this week's edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. We're on the web at gbh.org news under the radar with Callie Crossley and available for download wherever you get your podcasts. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Hannah Ubele and engineered by Dave Goodman. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. See you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening. Thank you.